Sunday school offering goes to supporting missions uh, and pastors in Nepal and Bangladesh and other places. So I uh, encourage you to consider giving there as well as your normal offering. Lord never receives a gift from his children that he does not bless back in some form or another. We're not a health, wealth, and gospel, you know, health, wealth, and prosperity gospel church. So no, we're not promising that if you give $20, God will respond with $200. That's not how it works. But you know, there are greater riches to be had than just the dollars we have in our wallets. He gives peace that passes all understanding. He gives joy. He gives comfort. He gives a sense of having fulfilled one's duty in a way that uh, you can't get in other places. So we serve a wonderful God. and We hope to give to him both of our hearts and of our wallets, as well as of our time and our hands and all the gifts that God has given us. So we're continuing our series this morning in uh, the Christian family. Our goal as believers ought to be to know God's will, and we find God's will within the pages of Scripture. Uh, we have many different belief systems that are out there that have their own forms of revelation, and nowadays, one of the you know, great mantras you see out there is that there's a truth for you and a truth for you and a truth for me. And my truth may be different from your truth. And so what I believe is fine and what you believe is fine. But that's not scripture. All right. Everything we have as a believer must come from and be filtered through the pages of scripture. So if I have an experience, I come to the word of God and I say, what does God's word have to say about this? If I have a dream that seems prophetic. I go to the scriptures and say, does the scripture bear this out? Whatever my experiences, whatever my emotions, whatever traditions I've been raised in, no matter what, it all comes down to the scripture. We believe that the Bible is the, can anyone complete the phrase? It's the only rule for faith and practice. All right. So you can listen to a preacher and as long as a preacher faithfully expounds the word of God, you can receive comfort and edification from it. But if I depart from the scriptures and start to preach something that's not scriptural, it's your responsibility as a Christian to say, no, that's not right. Because we always take our lives as Christians with an open Bible. That's how we ought to be. So when it comes to the family, it's no different. We believe that the Bible teaches us what a family ought to be. And not only in the broad sense, in the theoretical sense, this is what a family is supposed to be, but it gives us direct instructions, warnings, encouragements on how we are to build our families, how are we are to operate in the roles we're given as believers within a Christian family. Now, keep in mind, this, this whole series is about the Christian family. Do not expect for unbelievers to be able to build a Christian home. This is why it's so important 
for young people to not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Because Christians have a goal in mind, the glory of God. We're headed for heaven. We want to serve him. Our hearts belong to him. And while we go through many struggles and many trials in times of unbelief, in times of uncertainty, a Christian is always inevitably on his way to his Savior. An unbeliever is not. And that creates two very different goals. All right? The unbeliever ultimately always wants what's best for him or herself, even though these things may be layered with charity, with good behavior. I mean, I know many better behaved unbelievers than some Christians I know, which is a shame, but it's true. All right? But if you strip away all the exterior and all the good training and all the good upbringing, what you have at heart in an unbeliever is someone who desires to serve himself. They merely use different means to get there. A Christian has had their heart changed, and now there is a new desire. We desire to honor and glory, give glory to our God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. So this is all about a Christian family. We give this caveat because now today we're talking about dangers that come within the Christian family. All right? We're talking about, last week we talked about dangers that are without. The greatest danger... To a Christian family from without is Solomon and a strange woman. And we talked about how we can do our best in the pages of Scripture with the Holy Spirit's help to protect ourselves and our spouse from the dangers without. A man who loves his wife in a unique and special way helps to protect her from the influence of a man who is better looking, better loaded, smarter, more accomplished, more powerful. And we saw that in the story of the Song of Solomon, didn't we? We saw a shepherd girl who was being wooed by the king, the most powerful man in the world, and yet she had the strength to reject him against all societal pressure, against all, no doubt, family pressure, because there was a man who loved her in a unique way. And she knew no matter what else happened, Solomon had a thousand... She would never be unique. But to her shepherd, she was one. She was special. She was his only one. And we saw that a wife can help protect her husband from the strange woman by being reverentially affectionate, by expressing affection, by expressing reverence, Ephesians chapter 5, and showing her husband that she thinks of him as a higher person, as a better person than even he believes he is, right? We saw the young man that was devoid of wisdom and how he was captured, led, led as an ox to the slaughter, and pastor was telling me, how do you lead an oxen down the way? With something that he wants. You know, it's, it's the carrot mentality. You, hand, you dangle a carrot in front of him and off he goes, right? This young man was led as an ox to the slaughter because... The strange woman knew how to speak his language. And we talked about how Christian wives, above all people, should know how to speak their husband's language. Men are required, hus Christian husbands are told, we're to dwell with our wives according to knowledge, right? Because we know and understand our wives, we treat them in a certain way. And that means that each wife ought to be treated a little different because every woman is different. It's my responsibility to know my wife, to understand her, and to speak to her, to act in front of her in a way that best builds her up and strengthens her. 
And so it is, ladies, it's your responsibility to learn to speak to your wife, to learn to or speak to your husband, sorry, to speak to your husband and to act around him in a way that shows reverence and affection. Now, we're talking about dangers from within. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to look at the very last verse because we're given in Ephesians chapter 5 sort of the model. This is what a family, and again, we haven't even touched on children yet. We'll get there. But the foundation of a family is a husband and wife. A husband and wife are together for life. The children go. They're supposed to go out. We train them, we raise them so they can go out and build their own families and serve Christ the way God has called them to do so. I don't expect my children to be in my house forever. In fact, I guarantee you, my children will not be in my house forever. That's a promise. Because they need to go out and be independent because ultimately they're responsible to Christ as well. So now Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 33 tells us if we boil everything down and make it as simple as we can get, the Christian family involves, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. If you take all my responsibilities as a husband and you boil it down and, and, and make it as simple and compact as you can, I am to love my wife. And if you were to boil my wife's responsibilities, everything she's supposed to do and say, the way she's supposed to act, and boil it all down and make it as simple as you can, she is to revere me. Now, we said that's not a popular word these days. If you go outside these walls and say wives should reverence their husbands, see what happens. It's not going to get a positive response. But we're not driven by the world. We're driven by the word of God. Reverence. Well, the greatest danger from within a marriage then would be for us to take what God has commanded of us, for me to love my wife, and do the opposite, right? And for a wife who's supposed to love her husband and do the opposite. So what's the opposite? Well, we're going to start out, ladies, because, you know, we dealt with you last, last time. We'll deal with you first this time, so the men get the punch at the end this time. We try to be fair. The greatest danger for a Christian wife now, someone who wants to serve the Lord, who, who wants to do right, is indifference. Turn to Song of Solomon chapter 5. I know some people might be thinking, well, what about hatred? What about all these other things? Well, that comes. But remember that a Christian wife is going to see hatred rising in her heart and say, well, wait a minute, there's something wrong. But what we are prone to is indifference. Look at Song of Solomon chapter 5. Now, in the very first verse, the shepherd is speaking, and he says, I am come into my garden, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine with my milk. Eat, O friends. Drink, yea, drink abundantly, O beloved. Now the picture changes. They were having a good time together. They were enjoying fellowship together. They were enjoying each other's affection. And then... The shepherdess speaks, and she says, I sleep. Ladies, have you ever gotten tired? Ever once have you gotten tired? Maybe beyond tired, maybe exhausted. You know, this lady's been doing the right thing, and now she's asleep. Why? Because it's the middle of the night. 
I sleep, but my heart waketh. It is the voice of my beloved that knocketh, saying, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled, for my head is filled with dew and my locks with the drops of the night. And she says what a lot of you ladies would say at three o'clock in the morning when your husband comes knocking on the door. I have put off my coat. How shall I put it on? I have washed my feet. How shall I defile them? What? It's three o'clock in the morning and you're just getting home? Well, he was a shepherd, so yes. But it's rather inconvenient to have someone come knocking on your door at three o'clock in the morning. My beloved put his hand by the hole of the door and my bowels removed for him. I rose up to open to my beloved and my hands dropped with myrrh, my fingers with sweet smelling myrrh under the, upon the handle of the lock. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had withdrawn himself and was gone. My soul failed when he spake. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. The Christian wife's greatest temptation is indifference. Indifference can happen in a moment. And it's built over time. Now, now, let's take a step back for a moment. Let's not be too hard on this shepherdess. It's the middle of the night. It's clear that they were busy that day. Her husband goes off to do what he's supposed to do. You know, he's not off doing bad things, but he is away. And then he comes back home at a very inconvenient time. She's not dressed to get up. She's not ready. And, you know, when men come home from work, what do they want? Well, they want to be fed. They want to be taken care of, you know? I mean, men need to be fed and watered, you know? It's the middle of the night. So he tries to put his hand in. Oftentimes they would have a hole that you could put your hand in to try to unlock the door. And she sees that and finally goes, okay, all right, yeah, it's my husband. I do love him. But by the time she's made herself ready for him, he's gone. Realize this, that physical, emotional, and spiritual exhaustion tempt us to indifference. That's, that's not just women now, that's men too. Because men get tired, and sometimes when we're tired, we just go, not right now. But if you notice that God often calls us to serve inconvenient people at inconvenient times in inconvenient ways... In fact, the greater the inconvenience, the greater our opportunity to show love, isn't it? So the husband comes home at an inconvenient time. He's wet with the drops of the night. He's got dew in his hair. He's been out all night with the sheep, so he probably doesn't smell very good. She's been asleep because she's tired, and now I'm supposed to get up and take care of my husband. By the time she responds, you notice, I mean, she does eventually respond. Her heart is moved, but it takes time because she's tired. And that moment, that time of indifference, he leaves. Even godly husbands can be inconvenient and inconsiderate. Again, ladies, have you noticed this? I am often inconvenient and sometimes inconsiderate. That's the way men are. Now, that's not saying that it's okay for men to be inconsiderate. I'm not arguing that. But remember, we're Christians. We're not perfect. 
And so as we grow together in Christ, understand that there will be times when husbands do inconvenient things at inconvenient times and even become inconvenient people. Here he is in the middle of the night, knocking on the door, wanting his wife to open to him. And she knows what happens when you open the door. It's not enough to just open the door, let him in, close the door, and go back to bed. He's a husband. He wants things now. He wants to be fed. He wants to be watered. He wants to be taken care of. She's tired. But because she shows indifference, he does what many Christian men do when faced with indifference on the part of their wives. He withdraws. All right, then I'll just leave. Now, the shepherd here, he leaves physically. He goes away. He's got sheep to take care of. There are other places he can be. So he leaves physically. But, you know, many Christian husbands don't really have the option to physically leave. But what happens is when faced with indifference, many Christian men withdraw emotionally. Okay, all right. And intimacy is broken. The relationship is damaged because of indifference. I'm not arguing that there are no circumstances here that argue for the shepherdess being tired. She was tired. She was probably exhausted. But given an opportunity to show love and reverence to her husband, she rejects that, even if it's just for a time, and he leaves. Now notice... By the time she gets up, she starts doing the things that you, you know, should do, but it's too late. She's got her hands dropped with myrrh and aloe. She's trying to make herself up again, but her husband didn't want the myrrh and the aloe and the makeup. She, he just wanted his wife to open the door and let him come in again. Because of indifference, the shepherd withdraws. Husbands are built to refresh themselves with their wife's affection. Remember, it was way back in the garden before man had fallen that God looked at Adam being alone and said, it's not good. This isn't good. God has built a husband and a wife to grow together and to lean on each other. Husbands refresh themselves with their wives' reverence and affection. And by the way, ladies, you refresh yourself with your husband's love, don't you? When you know that he loves you, when he's doing things and saying things that shout love to you, when he speaks your language and tells you that he loves you, do you not feel strengthened, encouraged by it? Men refresh themselves with their wives' reverence and affection. So he was coming, looking to refresh himself. Remember, she's not the only one who was tired. He's been working all night, too. He comes looking for refreshing and instead finds indifference and is wounded in the process. So when rejected, godly husbands tend to withdraw themselves. But the problem is he withdraws himself. And most of you know the rest of the story. She has to go find him. Now, he says, all right, if you don't want me, I'll go somewhere else. She then has to go out and search for him and goes through quite a bit to finally find him. And you get to the end of the story and see everything she goes through. And you think, you know, wouldn't it have been easier to just open the door? The reality is it's easier to maintain and build a relationship than it is to rebuild a damaged relationship. 
So the shepherdess, whether she meant to do it or not, damages her relationship with her shepherd, with her husband, through indifference and creates a great deal more of exhaustion for herself because she chose indifference. Now, by the way, I'm not arguing that this is something that men ought to use to control their wives, right? This is not to say, man, you can, you know, you, all you have to do is just withdraw your affection, withdraw your love, and you'll make her have to chase after you. You know what? The shepherdess was special because she did chase after him. I'll tell you, most women faced with their husband's withdrawal go, fine, maybe I can rest for a while. She loved him enough to chase after him. The reality is that when a, when a relationship between a husband and wife is damaged by indifference, somebody has to go pursue. In the case of this story, it was the wife. She goes and she pursues him. And you can read the rest of the story there. But the point is that she damaged her relationship with her husband through indifference, realized that she had damaged it, and went and sought him out and made it right. Now we're going to look at a story of someone who's indifference. And by the way... Not without cause, but whose indifference destroyed her relationship. The reason why indifference is so dangerous is because indifference doesn't stop there. Ladies, when you get used to saying, not right now, I'm too tired, whatever it may be, it leads to something else. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Second Samuel chapter 6. We'll look at verse 16. This is a story of David bringing the ark back. David goes to bring the ark. He puts it on a new cart because that's what the Philistines did. David didn't know any better, or he should have, but he didn't. So Uzzah dies, and the ark sits there for a while. And then David reads in the word of God and actually rebukes the priests and the scribes and says, you guys should have known, you should have told me this. I wanted to do it right. Nobody helped me. But now we're going to do it right. It's going to be carried by the Levites the way it's supposed to. And he's so excited by the fact that finally the Lord has allowed this picture, the ark, of God's presence to come back to the place it's supposed to be. That he's out there, clothed in common garb, dancing and singing and playing before the Lord. Now, David was not a Baptist, so he was allowed to dance. All right, I'm sure his dance looked very different from any dance you'll see out there right now. But Michael sees him. And the scripture says, And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Now, before we get too hard on Michael, think about what Michael had been through. Michael loved David when she met him way back before Saul started chasing after his life. Michael risked her own life to help David escape. You remember that? Because her father had shown that he was willing to pin anybody to the wall with a javelin, including his own son. She risked her life for him. In return, her father, who was the king, who got to do whatever he wanted to do, married her to somebody else whom she lived with for some time, and it's apparent that if nothing else, her new husband loved her. Then David comes back. And in making up the kingdom, after years and years of being with a man who apparently loved her, 
David says, I'll get the kingdom back and I'll make everything right, but you better bring Michael back. She's my wife. Well, she was. Saul had made a mess of things. So now she's ripped out of the arms of a man who loved her, brought back to a man she hasn't seen in at least 10 years, who also has other wives now. You can understand why Michael maybe didn't like David much anymore. But like it or not, Michael was still David's wife. They were married. Saul had created a great deal of trouble and a great deal of confusion by marrying her to someone else. But now it's clear Michael is David's wife. She's carrying a lot of hurt by now. She looks out and sees David doing something that her very august father never would have done. And she despises him. I'm not arguing that there wasn't human circumstances that would argue, yeah, he was, you know, kind of despicable. At least the situation was despicable, except he was praising the Lord. So what happens? She despises him in her heart, but then it works out in the way she speaks to him. Verse 20, then David returned to bless his household and Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how glorious was the king of Israel today who uncovered himself today in the eyes of the handmaids of his servants and as one of the vain fellows shamelessly uncovereth herself. And David said unto Michael, it was before the Lord which chose me before thy father and before all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore will I play before the Lord and I will be yet more vile than thus and will be base in mine own sight and of the maidservants which thou hast spoken of, of them shall I be had in honor. Therefore Michael the daughter of Saul had no child unto the day of her death. So Michael's indifference ultimately led to disgust. Now think about this. If I were to define reverence, I would put it this way. Reverence is a conscious and intentional choice to ascribe value or worth to another person, whether that value or worth is merited or not. And it is to speak and act upon that ascribed value or worth. In other words, I think of you as being worth worthy as being valuable and I treat you that way that's what reverence is when we ascribe worth to our Lord we call it worship which literally means worthship we reverence the Lord by saying Lord you are high and lifted up you are greater than I am you are valuable you are worthy that's the word we use so to reverence someone means to ascribe worth to them and to treat them as though they are worthy, whether they are or not. On the flip side, disgust is a conscious, intentional choice to ascribe worthlessness to another person, whether that worthlessness is merited or not, and then to speak and act upon that ascribed worthlessness. Michael looked at David and said, you're nothing like my father. You're shameful. Not only have you shamed yourself, but you shame me because of the way you acted, because of what you did, because of everything that has come before. And David was far from perfect. She treats him as being worthless, valueless. And what was the result? It cost her the hope of David's love forever. Now, 
I'm not arguing that God is not a God of miracles. So verse 23 could very well mean that God closed her womb and made it impossible for her to bear children. But let me argue a different thing. David had other wives. There was no reason for him to mess with Michael ever again. David withdrew. And in fact, you see that it was a pattern of David's life. Every time he was wounded by people who were close to him, he withdrew. What happened with Absalom? Absalom did wrong. He should have done something about it, but instead he does nothing. Then Absalom goes crazy. He wants to get back to his father. Apparently, at some point, Absalom genuinely cared for his father, and David did nothing, and did nothing, and did nothing. And David's indifference drove Absalom mad. Every time people close to him did wrong, David simply withdrew. When Michael treated him this way, he withdrew. He had other wives. He had other people he could go to. There was no reason for him to pursue his relationship with Michael anymore. He didn't divorce her. He didn't put her away. He just left her alone forever. Michael's disgust broke their relationship permanently. I'm not arguing that David did right. I'm just saying this is the danger of treating your husband with disgust. Because if he's a truly a godly Christian man, he's going to take that wound and likely withdraw. Now, ladies, indifference leads to disgust. So what do you do? Don't allow indifference to creep its way into your actions. We know you're tired. My wife works 10 times as hard as I do. She's got five kids she's with all the time, right? She's homeschooling, she's cleaning, she's preparing for Romania, she's doing a thousand things, she's gardening and raising flowers and doing all these things all at once. I go to work and deal with plumbers and sales reps and things like that, things that she would hate to do. It's not that I don't work, but I'm telling you, my wife is a very hard worker and she gets tired. But don't let your exhaustion keep you from showing affection and reverence to your husband. Because if you allow indifference to creep in and you let it sit there for a while, watch, it becomes disgust. You'll start seeing all the stupid, shameful things your husband does. Like it or not, we kind of do those things sometimes. Now, husbands, it's your turn. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, we find a very succinct version of Ephesians chapter 5 here. In verse three, uh, chapter 3, verse 19, the Bible simply says, Husbands, love your wives and be not, what's the next word? Bitter against them. God has specifically admonished husbands to guard against bitterness. Why? Because the natural path of a godly man, now I'm not talking about abusers, all right? If a man physically or emotionally or verbally assaults or abuses his wife, he needs to get down on his knees and repent because he's probably not saved. I'm not talking about the kind of man that would abuse or hurt his wife. I'm talking about a man who's trying to follow the Lord now. God specifically admonishes husbands to guard against bitterness because the natural path of an injured godly man is to internalize the many injuries that inevitably arise in marriage and to become embittered, right? When you get married, it's all glow and sunshine and roses, at least it was for me. And then you realize 
that you're living with a sinner. And it takes a lot longer before you realize that that sinner is also living with a sinner. The damage, the wounds, the injuries that we inflict each on each other on purpose or not are part of the way we grow because we learn to forgive. We learn to compromise, not in a bad way, but in a way that means that we're willing to set aside our own interests and to love somebody, to do things that we wouldn't normally do out of affection, out of love for another person. Husbands, love your wives, right? Husbands, give them everything you have all the time, regardless of what you get back from it. That's what we're called to do. But bitterness takes that and twists it and says, I've done so much. All right, I work hard to earn the money, and I come home and I work with the kids. I'm not one of those guys out there that's out drinking on Friday nights. I'm not spending my time with other females. I'm not doing all that. I come home, I do what I'm supposed to do, and this is how you treat me. But I'm a Christian, so I'm not going to shout at her. I'm just going to go, hmm, I'll chalk that up in the long list of injuries that I have. It's a natural temptation for a man who will not allow himself to go to abuse or anything like that, to simply become embittered. And so Jesus says, through Paul, husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Remember, even godly Christian wives do not naturally speak the language of reference. Well, we get down to Ephesians 5.33 and it says, let every one of you so love his wife even as himself and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Husbands have to learn the language of love. It does not come naturally. We do not naturally speak love to other men. And if we did, most men would go, uh, hold on. You know, when a man tells another man, I love you, brother, there's this sort of thing that goes down our spine. We mean it and we know we ought to love each other, right? But that word is a little, hmm. Husbands don't naturally speak love. We have to learn it. And while we're learning that love, and we learn it for the rest of our lives, it's a nonstop process. Remember, there will be times, many times, when we fail, and wives will have to forgive us for our lack of love. Likewise, men, remember that your wives have to learn to speak the language of reverence in a culture that hates the word reverence. And that says the last thing that an intelligent, accomplished, capable woman should ever do is to give reverence to her husband. Why would you give him the time of day. And so it's natural to expect that we will be injured consciously and unconsciously by a godly woman who's trying to learn to speak our language. It's natural. Love is a conscious, intentional choice to seek the good of another regardless of the cost of oneself. It doesn't matter what it costs me. Right? Love goes beyond, I would give my life for you. Love means I will give today and tomorrow and the next day. I will give up my sports viewing schedule. I will give up my preferred hobbies. I will give up whatever it takes for my wife to get better. That's what love is. Bitterness is an attitude that we maintain by repeated conscious decisions to rehearse and magnify the wrongs that are done to us without regard to the merits or the circumstances of the one who did the wrong. It is the subversive, internalized opposite of love. It's when I choose to begin to be bitter because I keep thinking about these things. I don't deal with them. I don't confess them. I don't make them right. I just keep getting worse. 
It's a temptation for every godly Christian husband, for every husband, to take the wounds and the injuries that we take and to let them stew and seep because we don't have an outlet for it, right? We do. But it's not one that we naturally take. Husbands become embittered when they choose rather than dealing with the issue and coming back and saying, I need to ask you to forgive me because I have been rehearsing these things and it's tainted my attitude. It's changed the way I treat you. It's changed the way I treat my children. And we may be able to claim I'm still checking all the boxes and doing all the things I'm supposed to do, but the attitude and the heart of love that used to be behind it is gone. I still earn the paycheck that you spend. I still come home and watch the kids, not like all my coworkers. They get to go out and have fun. I get to come home. You know, I still help clean the house. But you can't seem to keep clean. I've heard all these things from good men. And you know what? They're doing better than the world, but they're not meeting the standard. Husbands, love your wives. Bitterness is the opposite of love. While a Christian man would never abuse his wife, I say that on purpose, a Christian man would never abuse his wife. They often abandon them emotionally, spiritually, and physically. That's what David did. Michael heard it. It's true. She heard him deeply. It was unwarranted. She should have been rejoicing that the ark of God was finally coming back to the people of God. She should have been ecstatic. Instead, all she saw was a husband acting in a way that her father never would have acted. Why do you think the Bible points out in 2 Samuel that Michael is the daughter of Saul? He's calling your attention to something. She's thinking as the daughter of Saul. No, Saul never would have done that. Saul lost his kingdom because he didn't follow the Lord, because he didn't guide his people to righteousness. And David was doing right. But what she saw was a shameful display. It embarrassed her. Men, try not to embarrass your wives. Try. But Michael was embarrassed. And so she treats him as if he's worthless. My father never would have done that. And he says, no, your father never would have done it. And remember that God took the kingdom from him and gave it to me. You can imagine how that argument went. Because maybe you've had similar arguments, maybe not about the same thing. And David becomes bitter. How do you know he's bitter? Because if David had loved Michael, you would have seen Michael on the scene again. Tell me where she appears afterwards. She had her own house built for her by the king. She had her own servants. Her needs were met. Kind of. But I guarantee you, David never came around again. That was it. It was done. That wasn't right on David's part, is what I'm trying to say, man. He should have been injured and said, that wasn't right but she's still my wife and I need to repair this relationship. But he didn't. Why? Because he had other wives to go to. Why is it so important for a husband, a man to be the husband of one wife? Because we shouldn't have other options. It forces us to come back and do right instead of saying, well, I've broken that relationship, but I got still got three more here I can pursue. 
All right, it devalues women because it makes them one of four. The shepherdess was one of one, and that's how it's supposed to be. But David had other wives. David had other people he could go to, and so instead of getting it right, he let his bitterness stay, and Michael was done forever. And that was wrong. Men don't allow bitterness to take control. Right? The cure for bitterness is to confront the problem. You first begin by confronting it with the scripture and with prayer. You must go to the scriptures. You must remind yourselves again of God's commands against bitterness. You must remind yourself that God has called on you to love your wife. And that love involves thinking about her. If I can put it this way, men, it involves revering her. Show your wife the reverence that you want. Teach your children, teach your sons especially, that your wife is above everyone else. She is the best woman that ever lived on this earth, and don't try to convince me otherwise. Why? Because if you maintain that attitude, it wards off the bitterness that comes from the daily grind of life. The greatest temptations within a Christian marriage aren't the huge catastrophic things. Those come when the daily grind wears us away and causes wives to become indifferent and causes husbands to become bitter. That's the great temptation. Those are the great dangers that face a Christian marriage. So now, wives, stop for a moment Stop for this afternoon when church is over and we've gotten everyone fed and you have that really brief period of time before you got to come back to church tonight. I know how it is. Stop for a moment and pray and ask the Lord, the Spirit of God, to examine your heart and life. Are you becoming indifferent? Ask the question, am I indifferent? Am I becoming indifferent? Am I allowing myself to go there? Because that indifference will lead to disgust if allowed to go unchecked. And then go to your husband and say, be honest. Have I begun treating you with indifference or disgust? And have that conversation. It's important. Likewise, husbands, Take this time after church when you've gotten home and the, the food is eaten and the dishes are washed and the kids are all off doing whatever they're doing or tearing down whatever part of their house you've sent them to. While that's happening, take the time to ask the Spirit to examine your heart and life and show you if you're becoming bitter. Bitterness creeps in so easily. Shine the light of the Word of God on your heart and then go to your wife and ask her. Is my attitude the way it ought to be? Am I treating you the way you should be treated? Or am I starting to gain that taint of bitterness that shows that I'm dwelling on injuries that are long since gone and should have long since been forgiven? If you'll do those things, you'll protect your marriage against the greatest threats that come from within. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the light and the mirror of the Word of God. Lord, would you take these words and use them in my heart? As you've taught me over this week, Lord, and convicted me, I pray that you would do so to the men and to the women here that are seeking to live godly lives as godly husbands and wives. Lord, restore and strengthen and magnify our marriages here in our church. 
that we might bring honor and glory to you, that we might raise the next generation, people that saw a husband and a wife that love each other desperately and that love God supremely. That is our desire. Lord, would you give us the desire of our heart? In Jesus' name, amen. Lord bless you. Good job.